Hey everyone, do you like Da Vinci and codes? Want to see a book where everything about Da Vinci is wrong and every code could be broken by a child? Have we got the garbage for you. Today we roast the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, or as he would call himself in an uncrackable code, Warren Bond. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and if you're a member of the Illuminati or the Priory of Scion, this whole episode was Dave's idea. <laughs> and I'm David Vance. I realized today my name is an anagram for Da Vinci Code, if you're a liar like this author. The Da Vinci Code is a chilling tale of secret symbols hidden in artwork and how unwarranted hype can launch a book undeservedly to number one for 30 weeks. And this is The Book Pile. All right, quick reminder to please rate and review The Book Pile, since Kellen has a family to feed, and I'm saving up for a goldfish. <laughs> Listener Bennett Dinosaur says, Quite possibly the most perfect podcast ever. I'll be driving by myself, listening, learning, and laughing out loud. Other drivers see me driving by myself with a beaming smile and wonder why I'm so happy. This podcast is why I'm so happy. I imagine him saying that to them with his windows still up. <laughs> the hosts have a wonderful chemistry that would rival Madden and Summerall, Lewis and Lanchop, or Statler and Waldorf. <laughs> Thanks, Bennett. You're a good dinosaur. Also, misused a mame, left a very nice review, and then ended with this. Also, I don't know that Dave wears glasses, but I've realized I've never heard a voice that more sounds like someone who does. <laughs> And my first thought was, that is not a compliment. And my second thought was, yeah, I do. <laughs> All right. And without further ado, here is our roast of the Da Vinci Code in five lessons. All right. Lesson one, characters don't matter. <laughs> so let's start with Robert Langdon. We talked before about books that have lots of wish fulfillment. This one starts out by saying, our main character is a bookish art history nerd, and he's so handsome. <laughs> also, his job is art historian, which my definition is someone who's pretentious about liking something that a lot of people used to like, but now they don't. <laughs> That's why I'm a Hoobastank historian. So the book sets up very early that Robert Langdon is scared of elevators, and you think it's setting you up for some thriller ending that happens on an elevator. No, it's just part of his character. <laughs> I'm just picturing Dan Brown at his desk like, I found his hook. <laughs> and Robert Langdon has a new woman in every book. And I used to think it was like a James Bond thing, like, oh, hey, here's the, you know, the shiny new girl. But I realized... Langdon and the women are so boring, and the relationships are so flat. The only kind of interesting part is the will they, won't they? So once they get together, there is nothing left. <laughs> it is funny because it is this uh, thing of people bonding during a crisis. So uh -huh. each of Dan Brown's stories basically take place within like a 48-hour period. So I just can't imagine going from making out after solving all these ancient codes and then like... The next Wednesday, what, they're at like a roller rink? <laughs> I love the terrible moments of like contrived chemistry. Like when all else fails, Dan Brown just like talks about their eyes. Uh -huh. At one point, this is directly from the book. Quote, I'm not going anywhere, Sophie declared, her green eyes narrowing with rage. Langdon wheeled, <laughs> looking fearful, his blue eyes looking panicked now. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, like the most in-depth description of Sophie is when it says she's hot like a Renoir painting. <laughs> this is also the second Robert Langdon book in a row where he falls for the daughter or granddaughter of someone who is just murdered. <laughs> so if you're a listener who wants to meet women, have you tried going to more murders? <laughs> yeah, this is... A, a different kind of ambulance chaser. <laughs> okay, so I, I want to talk Sophie. Kellen, if you had to describe the personality of Langdon or Sophie, and you're not allowed to say that he is brainy or she is fiery, can you think of any other words? French. <laughs> it is kind of a personality, isn't it? <laughs> In our imaginations, at least. <laughs> So her main personality trait is that she's a cryptographer, but then also Robert breaks all the first codes. <laughs> and also the first three codes are all anagrams. So just imagine the allies breaking the Enigma machine. Like it says Germany's going to invade Cramp. <laughs> There's also a scene where a Harvard symbologist and British royal historian say a code is basically uncrackable. And the code is English written backwards. <laughs> Go hold a book up to a mirror and tell me it takes you longer than five seconds to be able to read it. Because yeah, they're like, what language is this? <laughs> and Sophie cracks it because she was trained to read it as a child. <laughs> so no one has a real personality. And since there's no personality, the romance ends up being what I think must be Dan Brown's ideal relationship, which is they bond over art and puzzles, and it is so hot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Lesson two, treat the reader like they're super dumb. <laughs> so this book is for adults, especially with some of the content, but Dan Brown makes you feel like you're five. And he has Robert Langdon treat his fellow characters like they're all stupid. Like, I don't know how many times Langdon responds to someone with a smile and then a, that's a common misconception. <laughs> Which is a bold thing for a book that is so wrong to keep saying. <laughs> so here are a few examples of how Dan Brown assumes your intelligence level. <laughs> so he's describing the body of a dead man. He says, his arms and legs were spread eagle. It's like, got it. And then he goes, like those of a child making a snow angel. <laughs> it's like, I know what spread eagle means, but then he continues, or like a man being drawn and quartered by some invisible force. And it's like, okay. I'm worried you don't get it. <laughs> He should have just kept going at this point, like, or like a starfish, but with only four starfish arms, or like an X, or like a plus sign, but sort of diagonally, or like someone mid-jumping jack, but on the ground covered in blood. <laughs> at another point, the history professor slash knight that you mentioned earlier, Sir Teabing, he explains to Sophie... History is always written by the winners. Got it. But then he continues, When two cultures clash, the loser is obliterated and the winner writes the history books. And it's like, look, even if I had never heard that sentence, I would still understand it immediately. 
I'm surprised he didn't like make uh, one finger person in each hand when people fight with each other. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. Or as Dan Brown proves, history is written by the liars. <laughs> so at one point, um, they're all looking uh, at these, this mysterious code, like on a tomb. And Sophie says, the Atbash symbol, I've heard of it. Then Langdon goes, I'm not surprised. You probably heard of it in Cryptology 101. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like saying, good job. It was probably the first thing they taught you in your very first lesson on the easiest symbols that everyone knows. And again, it's even funnier because, yes, he's incredibly condescending while constantly being wrong. (laughs) That's my favorite kind of condescending person. Talking down to you from so far below you. <laughs> so I, I want to try this real quick, Dave. Try this on me. Tell me that you've heard of like a general simple fact, and then I'm going to Robert Langdon you. <laughs> I've heard the sun is warm. Oh, nice, Dave. You probably learned about that in sun class. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, uh, give me one. I've heard that... Owls sleep during the daytime. That's a common misconception. (laughs) (laughs) All right, lesson three. Facts don't matter. So a great part about this book is the main character is a professor who keeps going on these tangents to teach you things about history. And then they're false. It'd be like if in the magic school bus, they went inside Arnold's body to learn about the four humors. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm embarrassed that as a kid, I read this book and I just believed all the history stuff. And so later I read Les Miserables and was like, Victor Hugo doesn't seem like he was a grand master of an erotic cult. But if Dan Brown says, (laughs) here's the beginning of the book. Fact, the Priory of Sion founded in 1099 is a real organization. And his proof is a document almost everyone agrees is a forgery (laughs) made by a con artist. Then he lists as part of the cult Isaac Newton. And you should know, when Newton died, Voltaire basically said publicly he was a virgin. So I doubt Newton was part of a group fertility ritual. (laughs) And then this line says it all, and I swear this is in the Kindle version. All descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate, but all is misspelled (laughs) T-L-L. Anyway, there's this whole Wikipedia page just called Criticism of the Da Vinci Code, and it's so long that I'm just going to read you the category names. Fact or fiction, religious disputes, historical disputes, scientific disputes, allegations of plagiarism, (laughs) meaning it's all made up and not even by him. (laughs) So you're telling me he didn't even write all of this? Also, one of the supposed grandmasters of this cult is Nicholas Flamel. (laughs) So I love that J.K. Rowling's like, hey, what if Flamel were friends with Dumbledore? And Dan Brown's like, yeah, yeah. And like, what if he stood naked in a circle of people? (laughs) Anyway, final thought. If you want an example of how the book takes complicated topics and pretends to have easy answers, the public still considered Mona Lisa's smile a great mystery. No mystery at all, Langdon thought. No mystery at all. (laughs) 
All right. Lesson four: To make history more interesting, change it so that it is more interesting. <laughs> So this is sort of connected with your last point. This book can be a fascinating read, but I also found that like when you read it, don't hesitate to Google something if it sounds too fascinating. <laughs> it was especially interesting、uh, rereading this after now having read Walter Isaacson's great biography of Leonardo da Vinci, <laughs> which is、uh, one of my you know favorite books. And favorite episodes that we've done, but with that eight hundred pages of rich historical accurate context <laughs> <laughs> that he read literally from Da Vinci's notebooks. How though they were backward? <laughs> <laughs> It's crazy to see how Dan Brown like twists things like a political <laughs> candidate in debate. <laughs> so here's just a couple examples. It goes: the Mona Lisa wasn't famous because of her enigmatic smile, and it's like correct. But then he goes: put simply, <laughs> the Mona Lisa was famous because Leonardo da Vinci claimed she was his greatest accomplishment. It's like not correct. And then he adds: he carried it with him wherever he traveled. First of all. We learned from the book Hitmakers that her fame skyrocketed, not because Leonardo said that it was good, but because it was stolen in 1911 and turned into a global news phenomenon. And second, <laughs> Da Vinci carried it with him wherever he traveled for the same reason he carried a ton of his artwork with him. He was bad at finishing stuff. <laughs> And he was always in debt, so he couldn't go back places. <laughs> It's like he he wasn't mysterious. He was just terrible at follow through. <laughs> you would carry your stuff with you too if you also pissed off all of Florence. <laughs> so during this one scene, Langdon is having a conversation with a police captain inside the Louvre, and the police captain says. Certainly, a man like yourself is aware that Leonardo da Vinci had a tendency toward the darker arts. <laughs> But it goes, Langdon was surprised at Fasha's knowledge, and it's like, of course he was. <laughs> Langdon goes, he was surprised at Fasha's knowledge of da Vinci, although it certainly went a long way toward explaining the captain's suspicions about devil worship. <laughs> Da Vinci's eerie eccentricities projected an admittedly demonic aura. <laughs> Which Jesus picture is giving you that vibe? <laughs> so then he goes to this list, which is just crazy to me. So I'm going to read the list, and then we'll just go back over it because it's insane how he's tried to twist every little thing. <laughs> he goes, Da Vinci exhumed corpses to study human anatomy. He believed he possessed the alchemic. Power to turn lead into gold, and to even cheat God by creating an elixir to postpone death. It's like okay. First of all, he he exhumed corpses. Yes, to study. Like he wasn't using them in Satan ceremonies. He didn't believe he possessed like alchemic power. He was trying to turn chemicals into gold, like everyone is doing it, even non-devil worshipper. It was greedy people. <laughs> But to say like to cheat God by creating an elixir, like he was just, he was just like, hey, I want to come up with a magic juice that will extend life. <laughs> It sounds like he was just coming up with smoothies. <laughs> 
I want to hear Dan Brown write the history of chemotherapy where he's like, they plan to cheat death. (laughs) (laughs) So Dave, give me a a famous historical figure and I'm going to turn what I know about them into a a Satan worshiper. (laughs) Um, Ben Franklin. Everyone knew that Benjamin Franklin practiced evil with his key on a string where he attempted to unlock the gates of heaven (laughs) and claim the power of Zeus. Bearing his Satan-worshipping name, Poor Richard, (laughs) his heresy was punished by the curse of God, gout. Trying to blind God with his strange, giant forehead. (laughs) His evils emerging as young as the age of 11 when he invented the first pair of water flippers. (laughs) Trying to swim like a duck, though he knew he was formed in the image of the creator. (laughs) (laughs) All right, lesson five. Story doesn't matter. (laughs) A.K.A. there's no such thing as too many cliffhangers. (laughs) So, to borrow from Kellen, Da Vinci Code is like if clickbait were a book. (laughs) I kid you not, almost every chapter ends like this. They were trapped in a corner, and then Sophie did something crazy. (laughs) Or, Robert Langdon looked just off screen. What he saw was crazy. (laughs) Or this one is almost word for word. He wheeled around. Everything suddenly made sense. Was there still time? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't not turn this page. (laughs) He writes like a teenager trying to bluff his way through a free response test. (laughs) So most of it is cheap cliffhangers. But you know, my favorite part in a thriller is the part where they just slow way down and talk history. (laughs) And the difference between this and a history book is this history is fake. So at the end, I don't even know history. (laughs) And then there's the mystery side. So if you want to know the bad guy in a bad mystery, here's a trick that works like half the time. You just cross off every character who, if they were the bad guy, it would be unsatisfying. And about half the time, there's only one person left and that's your bad guy. So in this book, it's like, all right, we spend like 10 seconds with the cardinal and the banker, so it can't be them. That would be unsatisfying. And the police chief is already Langdon's enemy. So what? We find out he's also secretly Langdon's enemy? That's unsatisfying. (laughs) And we see Robert and Sophie's perspectives the whole time, so we know it's not them. So it's like, gee, I wonder if it's the only other character who got any kind of development at all. (laughs) I'm probably very late saying this, but I actually had a good time rereading this book. It is fun. Even with its inaccuracies, it's that suspension of of disbelief. It's just hard to know when to disbelieve it. (laughs) Honestly, with its anti-Christian messages, it's more like a suspension of belief. I have an example of a good cliffhanger and a bad one. So I liked, I enjoyed this one. Scrawled in luminescent handwriting, the professor's final words glowed purple beside his corpse. What does this mean? said Langdon. The captain replied, that is what you are here to answer. So this is very early on in the book, and it's very intriguing. And if it's intriguing once, just imagine a hundred chapters of that. (laughs) 
to then later on. Here is, for me, the worst cliffhanger in the whole book. When a police captain is chasing Langdon, they end up in the garage of, of you know, the very wealthy Sir Teabing. And there are sets of keys hanging from labeled pegs in the garage. So it says, quote, the labels bore familiar names. Rolls Royce, Aston Martin, Porsche. The last peg was empty. <laughs> when Officer Collet read the label above the empty peg, he knew he was in trouble. <laughs> But then we turn the page, and it goes, The Range Rover was black, four-wheel drive, standard <laughs> transmission. <laughs> Genuinely, like, this book is like someone is hanging from a cliff, and then they fall and catch onto an even bigger cliff, and then another bigger cliff. It's like they're falling down a set of stairs for giants. <laughs> All right, random facts. So... Aside from making us feel dumb, Dan Brown makes Robert Langdon smarter than a computer. <laughs> and uh, I don't mean to make our audience feel like Brown's readers, but if you haven't heard of an anagram, if you didn't learn about them in English 101, <laughs> is when you rearrange the exact amount of letters in a phrase to make new words. So, Dave, I went to an anagram generator, and it's hard to find one that can compute large numbers, um, but I put in our names uh, and with the generator that I used, I found that your name, David Vance, has about 30 anagrams of proper words. Mm. Uh, and my favorite one is caved divan, <laughs> which I, I think would be the way that you would say broken couch <laughs> with your vocabulary. <laughs> my name, Kellen Erskine, uh, has a few hundred. And uh, uh -huh. my, my favorites were... Eel Skin Colonel. <laughs> Is that not just already your nickname? <laughs> I guarantee you someone has read it that way at an open mic. <laughs> Is Colonel Eelskin here? <laughs> and then I think the best one of mine is Silken Kneeler which is my nickname in yoga. <laughs> so with that context, at one point in the story, within seconds, Robert Langdon solves the phrase, O draconian devil, O lame saint. <laughs> he solves it to be an anagram of Leonardo da Vinci, the Mona Lisa. There are over 100,000 anagrams of this phrase. No way. <laughs> yes. And he, he solves it before Sophie's like done with her Diet Coke. <laughs> so I, I barely skimmed through the first thousand, but the best anagram I found of Leonardo da Vinci, the Mona Lisa, is I did a conversational manhole. <laughs> There's no good interpretation of that sentence. <laughs> I love the idea of Dan Brown urgently lifting up every manhole looking for clues. <laughs> so I'm definitely guilty of the following thing, but da Vinci just means of Vinci which is where Leonardo was from. Mm -hmm. So one person pointed out that calling him Da Vinci, as in the Da Vinci Code, is like calling Lawrence of Arabia, Mr. of Arabia. <laughs> or saying, what would of Nazareth do? <laughs> so speaking of conspiracies, Alfred Molina, you know, Dr. Octopus, he accompanies Indiana Jones and in Raiders of the Lost Ark and dies in that opening scene trying to steal the golden idol first. Oh, that's him? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Of course you didn't. 
<laughs> That's my Langdon impression. <laughs> then in the third Indiana Jones movie, Indy goes after the Holy Grail, which is what Alfred Molina does in the Da Vinci Code movie, and he dies again. <laughs> So it sounds like the lesson is stay out of Indiana Jones's turf, which Robert Langdon should also learn with his sexy adventurer professor act. <laughs> so I realized reading this, the Mona Lisa is the most famous painting in the same way. Why did the chicken cross the road is the most famous joke. <laughs> it just occurred to me that the movie national treasure is like a Da Vinci Code ripoff, but for the United States, you know, like <laughs> for uh-huh. sure it was pitched uh-huh. as, uh, you know, the Da Vinci Code, but in America. <laughs> <laughs> so Tom Hanks is in the Da Vinci Code, but it would have made more sense for him to be a national treasure because then it would have been a movie that is called What He Is. <laughs> And it would have worked if he switched with Nick Cage, since he is an inscrutable enigma. <laughs> My friends, by the way, wrote a sketch called How the Grinch Stole the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> so the Da Vinci Code sold 80 million copies. Wow. And the only book that outsold it worldwide in 2003 was Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, which is crazy. To me, because The Order of the Phoenix sounds like a society that Dan Brown would write about. (laughs) It's also more likely to be real. (laughs) That 80 million copies makes me kind of sad because he paints this all as being true. In his interviews, people asked him, how much of this is true? And he's like, oh, you know, background, 99%. (laughs) And so that means if 80 million people read this, that means there are millions of people who still believe that like Leonardo da Vinci was, you know, the grandmaster of this weird cult and mm-hmm. people have been safeguarding the heir of Jesus all these years. <laughs> That's insane. This has got to be the most successful piece of propaganda I can think of in terms of reach. <laughs> One thing we we haven't discussed yet is the fact that when it's revealed in the book that the Holy Grail, instead of being uh, this sacred cup, is actually the truth uh, of Jesus's bloodline and that he was uh, married to Mary Magdalene, that the proof <laughs> of that is is hidden in Leonardo da Vinci's painting where they are actually sitting next to each other. And it's just like Sophie's mind is blown, but it's like, this isn't a photo of the actual dinner. (laughs) (laughs) It would be like, Hey, did you hear that Bigfoot is real? (laughs) I found this painting of him. That moment you referenced at the end where they find out the grail isn't a cup, it's a person, and that person is Sophie. It's literally a, the treasure was inside you the whole time moment. (laughs) (laughs) So Dan Brown's ex-wife filed a lawsuit, and she claimed that he had a secret double life, including an affair with a horse trainer. And I read the news story. It's the sexy young trainer falls for this old art history nerd, and I'm like, How is even this unrealistic? (laughs) Let me guess, her personality is blonde and hoarse. (laughs) Here's another example of it. Uh, Dan Brown's terrible attempt at chemistry. Sophie says, 
I'll meet you at the embassy, Mr. Langdon. Go now. And Langdon replies, I'll meet you there on one condition, that you stop calling me Mr. Langdon. (laughs) I just wish that she would have responded with, oh, okay, Bob. (laughs) It's almost like because there's no natural chemistry between the two of them, and neither of them actually has a personality, that the story has to stop and have moments of chemistry, almost like it's taking its vitamins. (laughs) (laughs) So when the curator was found dead in the stance of the Vitruvian man, if I had written this, Robert Langdon would have been like, Da Vinci? It's some kind of code. Why it's a... And then we cut away. (laughs) (laughs) So here's possibly the worst sentence of description I've ever read. The air inside smelled antediluvian, regal somehow, with traces of pipe tobacco, tea leaves, cooking sherry, and the earthen aroma of stone architecture. (laughs) Hey, Dave, have you ever smelled something that smelled like seven things? I just love how he dumbs this down as it continues. <laughs> so he starts with antediluvian, which means before Noah's flood. So I don't even know how you know what that scent is. <laughs> it smells like more animals. <laughs> more animals. Lots of dry ones. <laughs> and then it smells regal. But then he's like, well, for the rest of you idiots, it also smelled like tea and rocks. (laughs) (laughs) So on those history thoughts, what's funny to me is that there's this big secret in the book. It's the full conflict of the book. And some people want to tell the secret. Some people want to destroy it. Like six people get killed over it. And the secret is Jesus had a wife. And I guarantee you, If you ever found documents that showed that Jesus had a wife and showed him to everybody, you'd get like two responses. They'd either be like, okay, sure. (laughs) Or if they didn't want him to have a wife, they'd be like, I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah, I do think it's crazy that like so much of the controversy around the book and the subsequent movie were around this point. And even in the book, he says, you know, if the secret were revealed, it would shake Christianity to its core. And it's like, no, I think <laughs> I think it might shake one or two of the churches, but n- like not all of us. <laughs> also, they make a big deal at the end of like, this one family is the descendant of Jesus. There's this person who pointed out, if Jesus has any descendants alive today, then almost all of us are descendants of Jesus, statistically. <laughs> Let's keep this quiet. <laughs> So at one point when he's comparing Leonardo da Vinci with Walt Disney, he says, and I just imagine him fist closed, then numbering these off. Both men were (laughs) generations ahead of their times, uniquely gifted artists, members of secret societies, and most notably, avid pranksters. It's like, most, most notably? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, yes, there's the Mona Lisa and Vitruvian Man. But the thing Da Vinci was most famous (laughs) for was saran wrapping toilet seats. (laughs) Let's try this. Give me two famous people, and I'm sure we can find similarities that, when you rattle them off, sound striking. Okay. Um, 
Let's do Napoleon and Steve Jobs. <laughs> Both are currently dead. <laughs> Still trying to break into that Russian market. <laughs> and neither one was there for Steve Jobs's daughter. <laughs> All right, to recap, our five top lessons from The Da Vinci Code. One, characters don't matter. Two, treat the reader like they are super dumb. Three, facts don't matter. Four, to make history more interesting, change it so that it is more interesting. Five, story doesn't matter, aka there's no such thing as too many cliffhangers. And six, look for my new book coming out next year, The... I did a conversational manhole code. (laughs) 